today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Hamilton uh, politicians making us look bad in the Ontario legislature. All right, so we're going to continue on and uh, and chat about this from a PR standpoint. Uh, we're going to bring in uh, Alyssa Freeman, of course, public relations consultant for uh, Alyssa Freeman PR. And and we're, let's play the clip one more time of... Um, we've actually... Yeah, let's play... Uh, did you have that one? This Apparently, there wasn't a lot of audio or there isn't any audio video of the actual encounter but we found some there, oh geez, oh watch it not that oh easy ladies got no that's the wrong one i think that might be fake news here's what uh, mpp donna skelly had to say at the conclusion of debate during the division bells yesterday the member from hamilton center crossed the chamber and initiated unwanted and intentional physical contact with me. Uh, uh, Donna Skelly also went on to say, uh, mention anger management. Perhaps uh, Andrea Horvath should invest in some. Andrea Horvath said uh, that Skelly should look in the mirror. We have no idea what they were arguing about. Uh, apparently there was paper put over a camera when the encounter was actually happening. Um, both have uh, sort of disappeared into the woodwork today and aren't uh, aren't really addressing this uh, in any way. Obviously, uh, some sort of uh, dust up. We, we, we don't know exactly what happened because there is no actual uh, uh, account of it other than what the two had to say. Uh, that being said, uh, the speaker, the House Speaker said today that there is, uh, Donna Skelly had asked him to look into this, and the Speaker has said that there isn't enough evidence to uh, warrant anything moving forward, so this case is closed. Let's bring in Alyssa Freeman. As I mentioned, she is with us now. Alyssa, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Oh, I'm ready for you, Scott. <laughs> Put up your dukes, baby. I don't know if I'm ready for you now after that. Put you're up your dukes, baby. you're scaring the bejeebers out of me Let's here, rumble. Alyssa. Let's get ready to rumble. So, uh, first question is Does this make the hammer look bad? Am I being way too sensitive? Oh, let's not even get into let's make the hammer look too bad. Scott. Why not? Because you know what? It's this is less about where she's from than about what's going on here. So that's me with a hammer chip on my shoulder. Well, you know, yes, maybe. Okay. But you know, here first of all, let's let's call this. Wait a sec. Wait a sec. I want all you Hamiltonians to take note of that. I got a Hamilton chip on my shoulder now. Okay. Go well, ahead. I, I don't think they ever noticed. So there you go. <laughs> um, let's call this for what it is: the narrative bait and switch by the conservatives. Yesterday, there was the big fallout from the cap-and-trade and how much money will be lost. They, somebody did some accounting and figured out it's going to be billions of dollars over the next few years, meaning that all those programs that were funded by cap-and-trade are, like, forget it. Mm-hmm. So what is it that the conservatives are learning from our friends south of the border when you want to change the channel? Change it fast. This is... This has to be the most ridiculous, quote-unquote, I don't even want to call it an allegation, thing, it doesn't even deserve a name, that I have ever heard. Why Why are the PCs setting this tone? Because they don't need to. 
you know, it's, it's very interesting. It's sort of like a very sort of active-reactive, okay? So you want to get bad, bad news off the channel. What do you do? Well, if you're President Trump and you don't want anybody thinking about Brett Kavanaugh anymore, go on a road tour and start... You All know, right, let me stop these. you there, Alyssa. Right. So is the bad news the fact that by canceling cap and trade, there's $3 billion out of the Ontario budget over the next four years? Is that the switch? Because... Everybody I talked to yesterday, experts on whether it's electricity or business or so, what people, you want to talk about a bait and switch, this is a perfect example of the government taking money out of your pocket to put into programs. Why, when you cancel the programs, is the budget in deficit? Because they were using green money for things other than green programs. And I've said that forever, that this win liberal government spent the last couple of years preying on the sensitivities of Ontario's environmentally sensitive consciousness and use that as a general revenue to rake in money for the coffers. So they've set up these programs. They've now become dependent on it to run the government. So when you take these programs away, when you take the win finger out of your pocket, all of a sudden there's a budget deficit. Yeah, but here's the thing, Scott. You have a really great understanding of cap and trade. I would say you're about one, the 1% of Ontarians that actually do understand what cap and I trade I have meant. no idea what, how it well, works. So, it's a but, shell but, game. You know, your explanation was a good one. And I was just listening to you know another radio channel. And every time somebody is talking about cap and trade, the interviewer says, can you explain to us what this is? So there is a low understanding of what cap and trade, and the way it was um, uh, presented in the media was not exactly the greatest thing because it was a big deficit. So, uh, you know, I don't know what needs to trigger the Conservative Party to to do things to change the channel, but, you know, they, uh, they actively do these things. So here you have... You know, Andrea Horvath, who, honest to goodness, like I wouldn't put her in a boxing ring by any stretch of the imagination, who apparently goes over, talks to the other MPP, and she says, Donna Skelly says, oh, she accosted me and pushed me. But there's no visual evidence, and they're still trying to create a new cycle out of this. The next day, when Donna Skelly goes to the Speaker of the House, and the Speaker basically tells her, you know, kind of to get lost, it says there's no visual evidence, you know, sit down and be quiet. Where it really lost it for me on this was that a woman, Donna Skelly, called Andrea Horvath an angry woman. Well, she's an angry woman. Really, Donna, have you read the newspapers lately? Have you heard about the Me Too movement? Have you heard that, you know, we're tired of, you know, most women are tired of having to say, well, you know, explain why they're not smiling and that they should be not, you know, nasty women, angry women. As soon as I heard that narrative, I just thought, you're either a puppet for some key messages in a back room somewhere, or you honestly believe this, which to me is incredibly thoughtless. Uh, we I'll were, get off my pedestal. No, now. that's cool. I was watching. Uh, I, w- I was watching uh, this on the news last night, and I'm just shaking my head. The family was watching, and I said that makes Hamilton look bad. To which my wife said that makes women look bad. Yes, I'm with your wife on this one, Scott. One hundred percent. Why? It's not Hamilton. <clears throat> it's the action because it was a woman calling out another woman in a pejorative way. And as former Secretary of State, and I quote this often, Madeleine Albright once said, there's a special place in hell for women who don't support other women. So when you have to go about and say, you, you know, she didn't have to genderize this. 
she just could have said, if she had a soapbox to stand on, oh, you know what, I felt that the member of Hamilton Center was out of line. I felt that she had unnecessarily accosted me. But then going down this narrative or key messages probably developed by some guy in the PC back room and say, well, she's just an angry woman. You know, are you not smart enough to filter out the gender-charged language? I mean, really? I just lost, it just lost all credibility there, so I'm definitely with your wife on this one. Uh, are you surprised that neither is really talking about it today? We tried to get both on. Nobody's coming no, on. No, because it's not worth giving any... any well, first of all, um, Donna Skelly has said everything she's had to say. What more is she going to say? And, you know, once the speaker has said... There is no credible proof here. What more is she going to say without absolutely sounding like an idiot? Andrea Horvath is not going to give any more fuel to the fire over this uh, so-called allegation. So she, her people would counsel her and say, you don't need to go on for this. What about the general toxic environment in, in politics nowadays? In well, that it, you know, it is so unfortunate. You know, I, didn't, I don't ever know if there was really ever an era of genteel politics, but... <laughs> we, were, like, we were just talking to a prof from Mac who was talking about taking her daughter to watch uh, from the gallery in Ottawa, and mm-hmm. she was disappointed that they kept speaking over top of each other. They were just being rude. It was, not, it was no day different, uh, different from any other else, but was completely stunned that, at the level of behavior. Well, you know, it's kind of interesting that I think that there is, I think that Canada is far better than other parliamentary, you know, discussions that I have seen around the world. Um, You know, if you ever watch, uh, you know, in in London or, um, I mean, even actually in the States, when they they speak in the Senate, from what I see, I'm I'm not watching C-SPAN 24 hours a day, but, you know, one person speaks and another person gets up and rebuttals. So, you know, it seems that the level of discourse is more about shouting the other down versus, you know, let, let's hear what the point of view is. And I don't know what's influencing that or, you know, whether it's more of a, a Trumpian um, point of view or, you know, whether it's just, you know, uh, let's not even let the other person speak point of view or it's just a lack of manners uh, or, or quite honestly, lack of control by the Speaker of the House. I don't know, but it's, it, it's, it's kind of sad and makes politicians look like buffoons. All right, let's leave this one. Let's go on to the Make America, or sorry, mm-hmm. Make Canada Great Again. A hat, and it's being sold, or was being sold, by Hudson Bay. What is wrong with Make Canada Great Again? What's wrong with a hat that says Make Canada Great Again on it? Okay, well, let's dial back here. <laughs> Apparently, there were a few tweets that got to the Hudson's Bay Company, and it does have some um, holdings in the U.S. I think they own Lord and Taylor. Uh, and they're like, oh, oh no, tweets, people saying that they're disgusted with us. So I actually went to look at some of the tweets that were featured. I think it was in the Huffington Post column, Scott. Mm-hmm. One person had 96 followers. The other person had 200 followers. I mean, you know, the first thing you do from a communications, a crisis communications strategic plan is who's doing the screaming? We've gotten to a point where companies all of a sudden, they capitulate, boom, oh, oh, stop. Let's stop what we're doing. Forget it. Let's pull this off the shelves. They, you know, the first peep from social media and, and companies are afraid. And these are, you know, the Hudson's Bay is a company that uses social media a lot. 
So when you look at who these people are that are complaining, uh, there's certainly nobody that you would have to be worried about from my perspective. You know, you know somebody, you know, Maureen the nurse, who's appalled. Okay, you have an, you have an opinion, Maureen. Great. So, so uh, Hudson Bay, one of those companies, though, they just don't get involved in this sort of thing. Yeah, but where's their statement, Scott? Like, and I'm thinking, okay, Hudson Bay it has their act together, I would have to say. Yeah. So they pull off the hats, and as soon as you engage in something like that, that is a, a reaction from social media, people are going to notice. So then the next step of your crisis communication plan is you have a holding statement, or you have a statement. They don't have a statement. You don't even know why they pulled the hats off the shelf other than there were a few people screaming. Yeah. Even if they had said, in response to several negative um, you know, uh, tweets and correspondence that's been going on with head office, we've decided to pull the hats and you know, revisit this to see if this is a right product for our company. Boom. What Whatever. statement are you making if you wear a hat that says, Make Canada Great Again? You know, it also could be, Scott, and I thought about this, it could be sort of the antithesis of what... Trump is saying. Exactly. So, I mean, you couldn't know, you take this as a joke? Again means, you know, do this on your own terms. Don't be influenced by bad politics. And we, we do want to make Canada great again, especially if, you know, you're a conservative and the liberals are in power. So I don't think, I mean, yeah, you know, people have that whole sort of, you know, this is if you're, tr- uh, you know, promoting Trump and this is, this is what this means. But I Fascism. mean, really, Hudson's Bay, you're a big, big company. I think by having a cap that people disagree with, or if you even put out a statement with a differing point of view, or even some sort of explanation, you know, uh, uh, this whole thing about the internet is screaming, so we need to capitulate uh, without doing any sort of, you know, cursory or even deep dive as to what this means really, really shows bad planning. All right. uh, We haven't chatted about this, I don't think, uh, on the air, but let's do it today. Uh, Yesterday, first day of legalization of marijuana. Mm -hmm. How did Canada do rolling all of this out? No pun intended. Rolling out being the operative word? Yeah, yeah. You know what? I'm I sorry. You know, if you have to explain it, it just doesn't work, does it? I know. I know. It's like I want to be blunt. (laughs) I know. Um. You know, somebody asked me this in another interview, and I said, I think October 17th is going to look a lot like October 18th, 19th, yeah. 20th, and 21. But they're saying that this date's going to go down in history as is a huge day. Well, uh, it worldwide. is the end of a prohibition. Yeah. I mean, that's 100% correct. Um, I heard that online orders were booming, just booming. So, yay, capitalism. You know, uh, Mayor Frank Scarpitti puts out some, passes some bylaw that yeah. there's going to be no sort of pot shops in Markham. Okay, so somebody will just go to a dealer and go get it. I mean, Frank, you know, are, are you looking for a little PR? You've been quiet lately. You yeah, know? yeah. You, know, you want to get on some new shows? Well, that was a good way to do it. So, you know, honestly, and, and then there's this whole thing that I heard from Ford, well, you're going to make the streets less safe to drive. Okay. I don't know if you know any old stoners, Scott, but old stoners would go into their car and get high and then go for a drive. And it's been happening for about 40 years. Hmm. And nobody has ever like, measured the stoner fatalities on the roads of Ontario or in Toronto or in Canada. So honestly, I think this is, uh, you know, every news outlet wanted to fill the news cycle with this story, every one of them. And it didn't matter what it was, somebody would come up with something and, and, then, and they would jump on it. Honestly, there's something called news fatigue. And I would have to say that in the next 24 hours, I think that this story is just going to burn out. 
unless something really untoward is, ha- is, is happening. But newsrooms and news teams will be getting together uh, every day and uh, reporting on something where, you know, society has gone wrong because of this. But you, right now, I, it's, you, you, it's you, a non-story. You're tired, of, you're tired of seeing shots of buds on, on TV. I really am. And I thought it was kind of funny when they in Trinity Bellwoods Park here in Toronto, you know, they had a big, everybody was yeah. in the bong <laughs> and, and whatnot. And, you know, you you know everybody's been... Guys with their do-rags, like, oh, I'm a stoner and I feel so happy. Okay, good for you. You're not bugging anybody. We were talking a lot over the last several weeks about the social implications, the legislation, uh, health issues, all that sort of thing. What I found most fascinating with all of this was the business angle in the sense that this is uh, a product which appears to have many tentacles in, in the business world. And, uh, and, and they really seem to think that Canada was on the cutting edge of something. Well, they very well could. I mean, you know, there's the Colorado example, and then there's, you know, I think nine states in the U.S. that have legalized medical marijuana. And, you know, I think that we're going to see uh, a lot more of it. And, you know, everybody's sitting there going, gee, maybe I should have bought some pot stock. I remember when canopy growers were begging people for investments, yeah. begging. Yeah. You could have gotten it at for, for how much? Look, let's not even talk about it. So, yeah, I mean, you know, there's also countries... Um, in Northern Europe, uh, I believe Finland uh, has already done this for years, and and they haven't fallen in, off into the ocean. Uh, so I, I'm hoping that this is really just much ado about nothing. How is the rest of the world viewing this, do you think? Well, you know, if you look at the news cycle, when I was watching my morning uh, news and I flipped between you know, the Today Show and whatnot, you know, at 7.45, which is a high news time yeah. for a, a good story on any morning show, you know, they had their reporters here. Well, you can go buy pot in Canada, and, you know, the states was here, and, you know, but don't cross the border with it. And so, you know, people, the world took notice. The world took notice. The world will be watching. But I hope that there's nothing to see. All right, Alyssa Freeman has been with us, of course, principal at Alyssa Freeman PR. Alyssa, as always, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Mayor Fred Eisenberger uh, for City of Hamilton, of course, with us now. Uh, we've invited uh, both the top mayor- mayoral candidates to come in and chat on separate interviews. Uh, obviously, Mayor Fred Eisenberger and Vito Scro. Uh, mayor Fred is here today. We are still waiting to hear back from the other camp, and uh, they've yet to schedule an, an interview uh, with us. So, Mayor Fred Eisenberger is here. Thank you so much for taking the time. We appreciate this. Uh, always a pleasure, Scott. So, I know we've talked about this for so long, mm-hmm. uh, and no, I'm not going to ask you about the stadium but um uh, <laughs> my did, eyes my eyes twitching no 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 no, no. <laughs> uh we were all hoping or some were hoping and some weren't i wanted to make this an election issue are you surprised we are where we are at this stage of the game and this has become an election issue well they've made it so so you know one candidate has decided that that's uh that's his path to the to the mayor's office and uh you know he's using this to divide uh, the community and uh you know in, in more ways than just uh, on LRT but uh you know you know raising amalgamation issues and uh, notions that uh, parts of our city have been ignored by uh, by council and by myself which is ridiculous so you know we did a quick calculation uh, when that claim was made for uh, Flamborough and it was uh, over the last 10 years about 185 million dollars has been invested in Flamborough and uh, you know that actually 
equity has been delivered right across the entirety of the city. So yeah, I'm, I mean, I'd, I'd be surprised if people are actually buying this uh, this kind of mumbo jumbo, this uh, this whole series of misinformation that uh, you know taxes are going to be skyrocketing as a result of LRT, which is ridiculous. Uh, hasn't happened in Ottawa. Hasn't happened in Kitchener Waterloo. Uh, we would have heard about it by now. They've got nothing but benefit uh, and additional tax revenue as a result. Uh, Kitchener Waterloo being a prime example. So we we're hearing a lot of misinformation out there. Uh, hopefully, people won't be fooled by this uh, by this nonsense. But they're using this as a, you know a wedge issue to try and uh, convince people that uh, you know that something untoward's going on here. When uh, in fact, there's nothing but a win-win-win. I think you've mentioned it on your show often and. Employment opportunity, uh, you know, obviously the transit benefit, the infrastructure, and I, you, you know, about 75 percent of this is uh, underground and on the road infrastructure. That's let's, going to let's get benefit to that, that. Let's get to that question. Right. One one listener asked, Rick asked, uh, I'd like to know what percentage of the billion dollars is directed uh, into addressing old city infrastructure under the path of the LRT, and does the city plan to upgrade above and beyond the infrastructure beyond the Metrolink's commitment? And 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 as I said just now. It's, uh, it's roughly 75% or thereabouts uh, infrastructure. So underground pipe, water lines, uh, burying hydro cables, uh, obviously repairing and renewing the road, laying the track. But, uh, you know, it's it's this much. And, you know, if I can't show a picture. It's yeah. like 25% rail and track, 75% underground it's infrastructure. And my last understanding was that the uh, the city had negotiated with Metrolink that there was enough room in the budget to oversize the pipe to allow for additional expansion. What, that has to happen one way or the other. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is not a major, major budget issue, but it's, uh, it, it's an issue that uh, you know, I think has been negotiated. And that, that oversizing of pipe allows us to do the higher density development along the corridor. And that is where the big win is. Uh, you know, when, when people are talking about curbing urban sprawl and protecting agricultural lands, uh, that's exactly what we're trying to do here: is grow grow our city in a in a reasonable uh, you know density way along a corridor that needs renewal. Uh, and we're not talking you know twenty thirty story buildings. We're talking five or six story mm-hmm. buildings mid rise that provides more more housing units, uh, a lot of affordable housing units, more tax revenue for the city of Hamilton. That's a benefit to the entire city because you're generating more revenue off of existing infrastructure. And at the same time, you're protecting agricultural land, which is so vitally important for agribusinesses in our city. And so, and, and we're, we're expanding transit everywhere. This is not just about one line. This is about an entire transit system ex- expanding exponentially all the way through. With the election of the PC government, there's lots of chatter, uh, especially from MPP Donna Skelly, in regard to what this money could be used for. Uh, that has now been clarified. She has said that the Premier has said infrastructure, infrastructure and buses, or LRT. Uh, I, I guess uh, my question is, after that clarification, why would we be spending money for a legacy project like LRT? Why would we be spending that money that's been designated for that on maintenance stuff like replacing buses and pavement and, and bridges that hopefully we do anyway? Correct. Like, did, did any of the others, those other cities that you mentioned give up all of this just to get their LRT? Definitely not. In fact, uh, most of the other cities actually invested their own money, their municipal tax dollars into their LRT. Uh, Kitchener-Waterloo invested $300 million of their own tax dollars. Yeah. And as part of their development, uh, uh, 
Uh, Ottawa did the same, and they're on their third line, and they haven't stopped developing and uh, repairing and replacing roads anywhere. Uh, this year alone, the uh, city of Hamilton, about $250 million of uh, road repair, uh, sidewalk repair, underground services, uh, you know, at minimum, was done just this year. And we're not stopping that process at all. Do you think Hamiltonians realize that this work, uh, this maintenance, upgrade, whatever infrastructure would be done anyway, that it's not a this or that? Uh, I think there's some confusion on that, and I think certainly uh, this candidate is uh, is feeding that confusion. So try, trying to make it as if we have to make a choice here, we don't. Uh, we can have both, and, and both are happening. Uh, you know, every each and every year we spend $250 million or more. So these budgets aren't the same. It's two different piles of money. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, and, and you know what? Uh, maintenance is uh, something that every city has to do going forward. You know, this uh, you know, one of the big, big ticket items on this infrastructure piece is actually the Longwood bridge just mm-hmm. around the corner from your office here. You know, a, an aging bridge that has to be replaced, uh, you know, it, uh, it, it is part of the process and program, and uh, we're going to get the provincial dollar to actually help pay for that uh, going forward. Mm. There are, there are LRT projects happening uh, right across the country uh, for all the right reasons, uh, for the very same reasons that we're using it for, which is uh, not only, uh, you know, good public transit over the long term, but uh, that economic renewal and redevelopment and, 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 and redevelopment tax dollars that comes with it. And, uh, you know, at, uh, in Edmonton and Winnipeg and Calgary, uh, Calgary's been at it for 30 years yeah. now and adding more lines as they go. Uh, Ottawa is now, uh, you know, on the, so they, Ottawa originally had, had a proposal for an LRT. It was uh, killed by a council, council. Uh, you know, the next mayor came in and went right back to it again. And they're now on their third line, just finishing uh, lines one and two. And, uh, they're, they're, you know, they're pleased with uh, all, all the results they're getting out of that, uh, that investment. So why is Hamilton any different? I, I just don't understand how that reasoning, you know, washes with anybody out there. And, and you know, Kitchener, you don't have to go far. You know, a, a gentleman mm. came into the office the other day and said, I, I made a point of going to Kitchener-Waterloo. And I was told that it was a disaster and, you know, there was, uh, you know, wires all over the place and, uh, you know, businesses had closed. He said, it's absolutely fantastic. Mm. Uh, and he says, I've, I've, I've totally changed my view. I think that, you know, this other candidate is misleading people. And so, uh, you know, you look at Kitchener-Waterloo and $300 million of their own tax money invested. Their taxes haven't, haven't gone through the roof at all. They're, they're, actually, their tax rates have been similar to ours all the way through. And they're getting the $2 billion additional development dollars that uh, generates 15 to $20 million new taxes each and every year. You talked about uh, council changing direction of this. I'm not sure how many times this has been voted on and, mm-hmm. and approved and this, that, and the other, and how many committees and, and whatever it's gone through. Uh, are you surprised at this stage of the game that some councillors are bailing, especially when, you know, at one point, yes, now, no, and there's a lot of flip-flopping. Yeah, look, I mean, it takes uh, it takes vision. You know, councillors have more information than anyone out there in terms of what the value and the benefit of this uh, this project has been. Hmm. Uh, you know, there, it was a unanimous request of the province to give us an LRT. Uh, and and, and, the, and the, the stipulation was, but, uh, you know, give us 100% funding, yeah. which was, uh, you, know, uh, you know, an unusual step, but, but a, a, 
I, I landed 100% I think, funding. I think most were surprised to get that. Yeah, probably. Uh, but what, what we should be delighted. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, you know, the province, uh, taxpayers as a whole across the entire province are picking up the tab for this. Um, you know, why people are now getting cold feet when, uh, you know, they, sh- they really should be showing leadership and vision and understanding the benefits of this uh, entire process. It's not just about, uh, you know, the economic uplift. It's also about the employment opportunity. This is, this is now, you know, three or 4,000 people that are going to be building this, all local labor. Uh, people are, you know, if somebody came to us today and said, uh, for the next five or six years, I'm going to bring a company to you and it's going to employ three or 4,000 people, we'd be all over that. Mm. Well, this is exactly what's happening here. And then, uh, you know, hundreds of people employed thereafter in terms of maintenance and, uh, and, and upkeep. And the reality is that, you know, some are also making the claim that it's cheaper uh, on, on the operating side to actually run more buses. It's mm. actually quite the opposite. It's much more expensive to operate a bus than it is to uh, operate an LRT. You can carry that many more people for a lot less cost. Uh, there, again, getting back to what this money can be used for, are there other projects out there that are approved that are just waiting for funding to to, to be built? No, and you know the the reality is we start all over again. Yeah. Uh, you know if you're if you're getting federal provincial dollars, it's just not a, a blank check. It's uh, it's uh, there's an approval process that you have to go through. There's environmental assessments you have to do. Uh, you know, this has all been done on this particular project. Um, you know, if we start all over again with other projects, then all that approval process has to start all over again. And the reality is, as I, as I pointed out to you earlier, it never has the province or the federal government provided us maintenance dollars for roads and sidewalks and sewers. That has never happened, and I don't think they're ever going to start doing that. And so this notion that people believe that this government's going to change that pattern uh, is ridiculous. And, you know, if they do... Uh, then every municipality, 400 municipalities in the city, in the province of Ontario, are going to be having their hand out in a hurry, saying, "Well, yeah. where's our, where's our, <laughs> where's our part of pot of gold? Uh, we we have uh, we have roads that we need to do uh, this year as well. So why aren't we getting some of this benefit?" Uh, last question on this, then let's move on to other okay. stuff. Uh, worried that the PCs are looking for an out on this and using an MPP to do it. Look, I don't know. I mean, uh, you know, I, 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 I you know, I, I can t- I only take the premier at his word that uh, he, he's going to fulfill whatever the city of Hamilton decides to do. Um, and, you know, if, uh, if they betray that, then, uh, you know, that would be uh, very unfortunate and uh, certainly wouldn't bode well for, uh, for Hamilton. Uh, I, I, I can tell you that, you know, we're not politically well aligned. Uh, you know, we have four NDP members, uh, opposition members, and one, one uh, you know, conservative member. And that certainly doesn't give us a whole lot of strength to argue against, uh, you know, whatever they might do. So uh, I'm hopeful that uh, they're true to their word. Uh, if they're not, then, uh, you know, then uh, this whole thing will, will be a kind of wasted effort. All right, let's move on. Uh, Hamilton uh, has done, uh, it, well... In the last however many years I've been here, we were always talking about turning the corner. That has certainly happened. It's mm-hmm. great to see what the city is going through now. It's just, it, it makes everybody proud. Mm. Uh, what we, we still get lots of chatter about gentrification. Yes. It, it almost seems uh, like a double-edged sword success in the sense that everybody was hoping for all of this success now that it's come, but it's driven prices up where, mm-hmm. you know, really they should be compared to other areas in Southern Ontario, but that's leaving others behind. How do you balance the gentrification and the development? Yeah. 
Yeah, very, very difficult issue. Um, you know, we, we are taking steps. Uh, so our $50 million affordable housing plan is out there and it's actually having impact. We have about 17 affordable housing projects happening in the city right now. Uh, and that's a, that's a, that's a, you know, a net gain, a net benefit. Uh, some of the money for the affordable housing is actually help uh, inspiring that and more of that will come. But we also have to change uh, some policy, and we did that just recently uh, by by allowing for laneway housing in wards one, two, three, and four, which mm. is now approved, and that that will help generate uh, you know additional units where currently units don't exist, and yeah. that's one way of a pro- providing more more uh, access to units and obviously more affordability. Uh, you know, as we do that, uh, uh, the other is inclusionary zoning and uh, requiring uh, developers to uh, to have a percentage of their developments be. Uh, in, you know, affordable units. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did that on the waterfront. Is that uh, difficult to do? Well, it's uh, you have to demonstrate. Uh, they we they have to demonstrate some community benefit to right. get extra density. And what we can do is, uh, if if we provide them that extra density, that we it, yeah. we require that to be an affordable unit. Mm-hmm. We did that on the uh, the waterfront development. So five percent of the 1,200 uh, units at the waterfront is going to be affordable. It's going to be done through Habitat for Humanity. Oh, cool. And, you know, some have argued that's not enough. Um, well, you know, uh, we, we are doing affordable projects elsewhere, and we should continue to do that. But I think that that kind of standard uh, percentage, I think, is helpful for all of the projects that are out there. So we can, we can do that. And then there's uh, that density bonusing uh, as well. And then looking at, I think this is the next step, of where else can we create density where can- density currently doesn't exist, and that is, you know, in regular subdivisions where you might uh, want to allow uh, uh, accessory units uh, on uh, current existing subdivision lands that mm. uh, currently don't exist right now, and so that is an opportunity. Or, you know, allowing for basement apartments or right. additional units above garages, uh, that sort of thing. That's one way of creating more density and and one way of creating more affordability. When you're going, obviously, you you know, you, this isn't your first rodeo here. Um, mm-hmm. You're going door to door. You're talking to people. You're meeting people. What are they saying? Is LRT the prominent issue? What's the other stuff they're talking about? What are they asking? No, I mean, you, uh, you know, affordable housing is uh, you know on top of people's mind. Taxes, of course, is always always one. And you know, my commitment has been that we were g- we're going to keep taxes at or below the rate of inflation. That's what we did the last four years, and that w- is what we should continue to do. Um, you know, the uh, the issue of poverty uh, weighs on a lot of people uh, in our broader community. You know, LRT doesn't come up that often, to mm. be honest. Uh, you know, more so now that, that this great advertising blitz has happened with, you know, all the misinformation that's associated with that. But uh, it has not been as part of our discussions or even part of our polling. And we do polling on, you know, where are the top issues. LRT is not at the top of the list. Mm. So, uh, you know, a lot of people either weren't aware or, are, are, you know, or just have have, have decided that it's, a, that it's a done yeah, <laughs> yeah that it's a done deal and why are we still talking about this yeah because uh, it is approved both provincially and municipally and it's out for tender at yeah. the moment it's not not like we're we're in the throes of you know deciding you know where is it going to go and and how much is it going to how much is it uh, going to cost it's out for tender and we're going to find out soon enough what the uh, what the tab is going to be for the provincial government and it's another misinforming issue that somehow any overruns are going to land on the city of Hamilton. This is not a city of Hamilton project. This is a Metrolinx provincial project that is going to be fully funded by them. And uh, if there's any costing overruns, uh, you know, and, and I don't expect there would be because a lot of the projects they've done lately now through Metrolinx have been right on right on budget. Uh, but whatever it is, is, not, is there is not the city of Hamilton's cost. One more question on this, yeah. and we keep deviating back to LRT. Have you heard any concern from developers? We're going to have Joseph Mancinelli on uh, mm-hmm. next. Have you ever, have you heard uh, concerns from 
from developers that this is getting kind of shaky now. It's like, hey, we came in here, we were depending on this, and now it doesn't look like it's going to go, or it may not go, or it could go uh, either way. All of them are nervous about this. Uh, they, they've all, you know, made commitments to their projects, uh, you know, based on the, the knowledge that LRT is on the way. Uh, to pull the, pull the rug out from, uh, from under them, uh, you know, may not stop their current project, but certainly will stop them thinking about, uh, you know, any future projects. And uh, they've all pointed the, to this as an issue uh, for, for any of the developments that are happening downtown right now. The promise of LRT is already generating benefit. And to, uh, to, to kind of change gears now, I think, is going to have, uh, you know, some pretty significant impact, not, not only downtown, along the entire corridor. And so, you know, there's a lot of potential, uh, you know, development that could come. Uh, that are uh, it's going to be thwarted, I think, as a result of not not following through. Uh, interesting question uh, from a listener, David, uh, in regard to something that isn't LRT ambulances. Mm-hmm. Uh, what yeah. uh, your thoughts on the almost daily ambulance code zero events happening? Yeah, been a been a you know a terrific challenge. Uh, you know, I, I raised this issue maybe six months ago when I was uh, spent a little time in the hospital and saw all of the ambulances backed up and the police officers. You know, uh, you know, w- all of them waiting to get uh, you know patients entered into the hospital. I knew it was happening, but I just didn't see the kind of full volume of that. And with five or six ambulances standing there idle for mm-hmm. hours and hours and hours. It's a big problem. We, uh, we uh, at that point, uh, got together with St. Joe's and Hamilton Health Sciences and have, have made some significant progress. And, you know, over the last uh, six months or so, we haven't heard much on that issue up until the, the last couple of weeks where there's been another spike. And I guess you and don't so, really hear about it until there is a spike. Right, right? exactly. Yeah. Uh, so one of the challenges is, and, and you know, we, uh, the province announced a $90 million funding envelope. Unfortunately, none of it, I think, is identified for, for hospital additional hospital beds in Hamilton. But that's the challenge. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, underfunding on the hospital side that uh, does not allow them to create the hospital beds that that would allow them to bring patients in and get them properly registered and and entered into the, into the hospital and off the off the ambulance ambulance's hands. So that's really the ultimate thing that has to happen here is they need more capacity, and that would allow them to uh, to get out on the street sooner. We uh, as a city actually uh, you know. Uh, uh, Brought in two additional ambulances and and uh, and, and additional paramedics uh, to to help uh, you know with the shortfall or with the, the challenges that we're having, but it can't all land on the city of Hamilton. One of the things that we've asked the premier to do is allow Hamilton to do its own dispatch. Hmm. Currently, we're de- we're being dispatched through the through the provincial network. And uh, I think we can be much more efficient if we're able to do our own dispatch uh, locally here. Then we can uh, deploy the resources much more quickly. That's interesting. Uh, only a minute or so left. As you're heading into the last weekend, what's the biggest challenge for you? And, and what do you want voters to know? Uh, Hamilton is much more than just a transit line. Uh, we have uh, poverty challenges. We have uh, affordable housing issue challenges. Uh, we have uh, um, um, economic development uh, and future job issues that uh, are going to be very important. All areas that I've uh, you know aggressively worked on and will continue to do. Today we announced uh, uh, a focus on the digital technology and uh, you know advancing the uh, the importance of uh, fiber optic uh, investments in the city of Hamilton that's going to be uh, that's going to lead to future job production in, as well and and we talked about the uh, film studio that uh, hmm. i think is on the horizon that uh, is going to be so important that would likely employ about a thousand people but generate an awful lot of spillover activity all of those areas need to be uh, developed and nurtured, and uh, we've been doing that uh, for the past four years, and we're going to continue to do that. So let's make sure that we uh, elect someone that has the full range of issues at hand rather than just one. All right, Mayor Fred Eisenberger has been with us, City of Hamilton, and, of course, don't forget to get out and vote on Monday. Good luck. Thanks, Scott. 
You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. We talked about this yesterday, of course, uh, Paul Bernardo uh, wanting parole 25 years since, of course, he took the lives of Leslie Mahaffey and Kristen French along with Carla Homoka. Uh, Carla Homoka now out as of a deal that uh, she cut in order to get a convic- uh, conviction of uh, Paul Bernardo and is now living, I believe, in Quebec uh, with a couple of kids and such. Uh, Paul Bernardo, though, uh, trying to get out for the very first time, applying for parole and being denied. Here's what uh, Tim Danson said. He is the lawyer for the Mahaffey and French families. It's not so much that it would make the family feel better um, uh, if, if he said he was sorry, because it would be pretty hollow words. But, what, but it's very relevant to the test that the parole board has, which is public safety. And when you're incapable of doing that kind of uh, apology and showing that kind of remorse, you're reaffirming the, the, the medical diagnosis uh, that you're a psychopath and incapable of it. All right, there you have it, plain and simple. Let's bring in Jordan Donich, criminal lawyer, Donich Law, and is with us now. Jordan, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Glad to be here. Uh, why wouldn't someone like Paul Bernardo, you heard what Tim Danson said there, why would, considering he's had 30, 25 years to work on that, he, he's, he's not a stupid man, although he is a psychopath, I guess. Why not work on showing some remorse or apology? I'm certainly not trying to get this guy a pass by any means, but if he's going to do this, why does he at least not know what he has to do? So we don't know what's going on in his head, right? Um, the simple answer may, it could be that he's not remorseful, right? That, on its face, it could be that. And that's basically what Danson's saying. I think so, right? But let's just assume for a second he did apologize. It would be immaterial and make no difference to this outcome. And I think that's the point here. Um, he's not getting out one way or the other. And, we ha- and we've, we've talked about this before. If Paul Bernardo is not detained, uh, then who will be? Right? Who is bad enough to be denied per- uh, parole, right? other than Paul Bernardo? And I think that's what this is about. It's, it's also a precedent. What about the victims' families? And, um, sh- you know, yesterday during this hearing, the, the mothers of, uh, of Leslie Mahaffey and, and Kristen French had to get up there and, and speak and, and, and once again give a, a, an impact statement. Why do they have to go through this? Or do they, if he's not getting out? So it would be optional for them. Um, They don't have to be part of the process. But, I mean, to them, they want to probably continue to use every piece of ammunition they have to ensure he's denied early parole or parole eligibility. So uh, that's the reason they participated, really. Um, Even if they didn't participate, though, right, and we break this down some more, um, it's very likely the outcome would be the same. Uh, but what's going through their heads, I'm sure, is fear, right? Um, and what can we do to make sure this person stays behind bars and we're still willing to put up the fight, you know, a quarter century later? Is this not re-victimizing the family? It is, and there's arguments about that. Um, there's arguments about re-victimization throughout the whole court process, right? We've heard about this with sexual assault victims at the trial. We've heard about it uh, throughout the court process. And, uh, and unfortunately, um, it's just how our system operates. Um, it is up to the victim, though, um, or in this place, in this case, it'd be the family to provide impact statements. But 
I think you're right. They are dragged back in, and we can expect this probably again in a couple of years when he re- reapplies. That being said, and, and I can certainly imagine this, I mean, my goodness, losing a child, it's, it's every parent's worst nightmare. And you can understand a parent wanting to go there and, and, and stand up for their, for their kid, uh, no matter what the scenario is. But at the end of the day, they don't have to do this, do they? Or do they? So at the end of the day, I think you're right. They, they don't have to go through this process, but, but they want to be there, I right. think, right? And they want to make sure their voice is continually heard. And, um, and probably if sure- they don't, they're not speaking for their kid who cannot. I mean, and, and that, that's certainly one way to take it. Uh, but at the end of the day, right, they, they don't want him out. They don't want this guy out of custody. And, and that's really what this is about, them ensuring uh, that people know and, and remember the horrific crimes and that they're still impacted and that they disagree with any decision otherwise. And that's, I think, why they're, why they're there. Uh, as you mentioned, another two years, uh, obviously 25 years, uh, and, and they didn't have to go through this, 25 years seems to have, have just whipped by any of, the, any of those of us that have, that have followed this case since the beginning. Um, now every two is... Is there any way that can be changed? Because I understand now there's a law, if Paul Bernardo was to commit this crime now, that this wouldn't be the case where he would be eligible for parole in 25 years because they would be consecutive sentences. So he'd be eligible for parole. You know, here's two, although he was certainly involved with the Scarborough rapist murders and such. Um, it It would be a much longer time before he would even be able to apply. Is that correct? So the law has changed. You're right. Consecutive sentences are new. We've talked about that with the Bosma case and and uh, Jason Bork uh, um, shootings. Um, but you're right. Um, the way the criminal code works is that the offender gets the benefit of the law at, at the point in time. So, for example, if you get in trouble now and by the time you're sentenced or by the time it's relevant, the law is worse. The offender generally will get the most lenient time in law to their benefit. And for Paul Bernardo, that's his right right now to apply for early parole. Um, And what we could see, unfortunately, is the family being dragged through this again, right? And who knows, maybe he's the kind of guy that gets a kick out of it, right? Mm -hmm. We don't know, right, what's going through his head. But if if we put ourselves in his head, uh, he's a guy that has nothing to lose. Yeah. It's a day pass for him. And that's that's the point, right? In his mind, these people are the most dangerous. They have nothing to lose. They have nothing left. So what's in it for them to just sit on the sideline? So because obviously Paul Bernardo was convicted, charged and convicted during, you know, before the new law was enacted, the, the new law cannot be applied to him. It would be difficult, I, I think, yeah. to find a way to make it to apply um, just because it wouldn't have jurisdiction at the time he was sentenced. Um, I mean, anyone can make arguments, but I think that's a pretty safe bet. He would be probably one of the last high-profile killers to to not be uh, subject to this law. Is that accurate? I think so, right? And we will find out as time goes on. I mean, there's probably, um, and certain, certainly in terms of profile, yes, there's obviously other convicted murderers out there that we right. will hear about coming through the system in the next decade as a kind of a catch-up. Um, but but the point is, this I think you're right, is the end of an era, right? And what we're going to see is, is a change and a lean more towards U.S.-style sentences with consecutive sentences. Um, and, and the parole kind of 
process will eventually become moot for offenders like this because you're not going to be alive anymore by the time your sentence is up. Hmm. Um, uh, so every two years, this is going to happen again, correct? Or if so, it, it's up to him? So, yeah, it's, you're right. There's, there's obviously the factors of what he decides, but as it presently stands, he will apply again uh, for early parole shortly. What happens after that will ultimately, I think, be up to him. And you never know. There may be some directives, right, from the parole board at that time. I can see there being an argument from the family that they shouldn't be put through this right. every two years for the rest of their lives. Something doesn't... But, the poor, but nobody can... Nobody... I mean, as it, Paul Bernardo has the right to do this every two years, so there's not much the parole board can do about that, is there? But if I was the family's lawyer, I would find a way to make some kind of argument somehow. Uh, or some kind of ruling, because, you know, it's not really proper for the family to what? They go through this every two years for the rest of their lives. That's almost worse. That's, that's, that's worse than, than it's ever been, right? So yeah. um, as to what actually happens, I don't know. These are probably novel technical arguments. But if I was a lawyer for the family, I'd have a problem with that, coming back repeatedly, going over the same thing over and over again getting the same decision. So interesting, and we'll probably find out as it unfolds. And, you know, the fact that the law has been changed, Jordan, I mean, that would, would that, well, it doesn't look like this guy's going to get out anyway, or he's not going to get out anyway. But that being said, the fact that the law has changed and somebody charged with this crime now would be a, a lot more severe. Um, does that weigh on the parole board at all? Well, so I think you have the right idea, right? What, what kind of we're saying here is, look, t- times are different now. Yes, uh, uh, they may have been different at the time he was sentenced, and yes, he may have certain rights, but this is where we are as society now, and, and someone shouldn't be able to just you know, abuse the process over and over again to re-victimize families, right? So those are, I, I, if I was counsel, I mean, I don't know how I would do it, um, but I would find a way to argue that somehow so that the family isn't dragged back to a hearing over and over again, you know, for as long as he lives. There's got, there has to be some kind of stop to that, I would think, at some point. Another question here, Jordan. Uh, this guy's been in segregation ever since he was put in jail. I mean, he's kept out of the general prison population for, for simply his own safety. Uh, he would be murdered. So how is he going to get out? Where is he going to go? What's he going to do? And how would he be protected? I mean, is he not in the safest spot for himself? So... I don't think their decision to release them is to protect themselves. I think their decision not to release them is to protect society. Right. Um, um, but, but you're right. Whenever you apply for parole, you need a, a plan. You can't just say it's time to go. Um, whether that involves an ankle bracelet, whether that involves some kind of uh, curfew or some kind of house arrest or whatever it is. But you have the right answers. You need a, a plan to get out, and you can't just say it's time to go. And somebody in his situation after 25 years probably um, doesn't have a lot of roots in the community anymore, probably doesn't have a lot of family willing to support him. I don't know, um, but but I would imagine it would be harder than perhaps some other offenders. Well, also, can you imagine if this guy walked down your main street? I mean, we, we already see this with Carla Homolka in Quebec. I mean, people would be outraged. And I think you have again. You're right about that. Public confidence in the justice system is probably something that's going through the minds uh, of the members of uh, of the hearing. Um, to them, they're going to be thinking, you know, what is the public going to think if we release this guy? Are they still going to have confidence in us? 
Is it going to bring the administration of the justice system into question? Uh, and those are all considerations they're making. The easiest way, I think, to come to the decision not to release him, right, without getting into all the gray zone, is he's not a safe guy. Right? And that's probably why uh, it, it, it was approached in that fashion. Yeah, there's certainly one, as you said earlier, if not this guy, who, right? Um, so you don't think things like the, the recent uh, publicity around the Tory Stafford case and her killer going to a healing center, none of that would have played into this because this case is just so obvious. I think so. And again, it's, it's yeah, we like we've said, right, if this guy isn't one that's really going to actually be locked up forever uh, for what he's done... Um, and, and we have that power as a society, right? We have that ability in the criminal code and in the justice system to do that to really bad people. Um, if, it, if Paul Bernardo doesn't qualify for that, then who does? How terrible must they be, right, to have the full punishment? Can he, uh, can he apply to get out of segregation? Because obviously he's been out of the prison population in segregation and basically, from what I understand, out for an hour. Um, uh, within the facility, I I can't imagine what that's like for 25 years. Not that I have any sympathy for the guy whatsoever, but can he apply to get better conditions there, uh, like being put in with the rest? That certainly can be done, and I'm sure he's done it already and been denied. So I'm sure we're way past that, right? No so they would point. just say, so they would just say, no, you can't because you'll be killed. Would they would they say that? Would that would that be the reason? Well, I'm sure they would use either his safety or perhaps safety of other um, inmates as a reason, right? And we can see, right, he, he was just charged recently. I think the charges were disposed of. Um, but he, th- those types of allegations are probably part of the reasons uh, why he's segregated. We've talked about this before, but touch on it again. What's life like or what would be life like for him? So it would be probably, I think, pretty boring. Um, that's what I've been told by our clients in custody. Um, it's boring. Um, and, and I mean, generally they're not uh, in danger. Uh, it's not what people think, right? I have a lot of clients going into custody who are, are scared for the first time. First offenders, you know, made a boo-boo, whatever. Um, but it's not what you see on television as a general theme. Uh, I never hear from people ever again after they go in. And that's usually a good reason. That's a good thing if I never hear from them. And that, is, that means because they're okay. Um, but when you're in solitary or confined, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm sure time would take its toll on your sanity. Uh, and that's probably uh, a, a big reason why uh, the parole board is being very careful with his release. Uh, that being said, how do you balance, because from what I understand about parole boards, the idea here is when you're in prison, they're trying to rehabilitate you. How do they decide who they can rehabilitate, who they cannot? So when you're an offender, especially for a sex offense, um, whenever they're deciding release, they're going to want to see that you've done treatment always. And here in Ontario, there's actually specific facilities you can go to as an offender and you go with other sex offenders and they have specific programming. Um, Whether they're doing it to get better or to increase chances of early parole, I don't know. But the point is doing that will help your release. Um, and, and that, that's an example of one of the tools he could have done or should have done. But again, when you're an offender like Paul Bernardo, these things are pretty immaterial. The crime is so terrible. You're so, so dangerous. There's so much pressure, I think, on the parole board and the you know, justice system generally to not release this individual. I don't think any, I don't think there's anything he could do other than go back in time that would help him get out of custody. What kind of programs would he be offered there? 
So I would expect the primary programs to be related to some kind of sexual you know, rehabilitation, obviously. Um, he has more issues than that. I mean, this is an individual who's you know, obviously doesn't have a problem killing people. Um, but, but, but when you're, again, when you're that difficult and that kind of distorted as an individual, we have to ask ourselves, you know, can you even save someone, right, if they're that mm. distorted, right? Um, what, what programs can you put someone in who's committed those crimes and who's been okay with that? to kind of fix them. Are they fixable? I mean, I'm not a, a therapist personally, but I mean, those would probably be some of the questions that are going to be considered when releasing this type of individual, right? Uh, can you, in fact, make this, per- this person who's committed these offenses a, per- a law-abiding citizen and someone who's safe to reintegrate into society? Would he have been receiving some sort of regular counseling over the last 25 years? Well, I'm sure he has, and yeah. and and if and if he wants to increase his chances of, of release, I'm sure uh, that was presented uh, by him. Um, but again, um, you're not dealing with a normal, typical offender, right? A normal, typical offender generally has not committed murder. Okay, generally has not done extreme violence or, or, or sexual offenses, right? When you're in that category or that gravity of criminality. Um, there's only so much you can really do to, to, to show that you're sorry and to show that you've changed. There comes a point in time where what you've done is so bad um, that it doesn't matter, I think, you know, in, in the mind of the person releasing you, how much you've done since the date of the offense. What would it be like, and, and you know, I could ask you this question as well, Jordan, because you're obviously the lawyer here. You've been, in, you've been involved in these scenarios before. What's it like for those who work in a facility like this and have to uh, interact with him on a daily basis. What's that like? So for those individuals, I mean, I, I, I would, I'm sure it would be difficult, right? You're, you're all day around distorted human beings, mm-hmm. right? Um, all day around people who are violent, committed offenses. Um, you know, from what I've been told, they actually have somewhat of a good relationship with uh, with certain offenders. And the reason is, I mean, it's generally not in your interest as an offender to be uh, difficult, uh, right? With, or to make uh, life any more difficult than it is. Right, especially with the people that are enforcing custody, right? I mean, so, uh, but you'd ha- if you put yourself, though, in the position, like in the mind of the of the officer, right, who's supervising these people, yeah, it can be pretty toxic because all day, every day of your life, you're surrounded, right, uh, except for maybe your colleagues, with what society has deemed the most dangerous and toxic people. And that sure can take its toll. Jordan Donich is with his criminal lawyer, Donich Law, talking about uh, Paul, Bernardo, uh, Paul Bernardo being denied bail in the case of Leslie Mahaffey and Kristen French. Jordan, thanks for the time and insight as always. Much appreciated. Thanks very much. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.